This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week, my guest is Matt Brown from The Athletic, an AP College Football poll voter, one of the most knowledgeable people I know about the past and present of our favorite sport. We're talking College Football Hall of Fame with Matt this week. He and I did this exercise last year where we take the recently released College Football Hall of Fame ballot and pick a class of 13 players and two coaches to make the Hall of Fame. We also talk a little bit about future Hall of Famer, at least I think he'll be a future Hall of Famer, Reggie Bush, who was brought back into the fold at USC after a 10-year ban by the NCAA. After our conversation, I have a few thoughts on player empowerment and the latest mini-uprising in college football, this time at Oklahoma State. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, just about anywhere you'd like to get your podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Matt Brown is an editor for The Athletic, college football side. He is an AP voter, one of my favorite AP voters because he uh, he does deep dives on the poll every week. Uh, he is really thorough and diligent, as I like to tell people. Uh, there are very few people I, I know in the sport, covering the sport right now, who know it with a wider breadth of knowledge than Matt Brown from The Athletic. So, Matt. Thanks for joining me today for our uh, Hall of Fame edition of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for the kind words, and thanks for having me, Ralph. Awesome. Let's um, let's start with this. Before we get into the Hall of Fame stuff, um, last week bef- after this podcast was recorded, uh, the big news in college football, certainly toward the end of the week, there seems to be a lot of big news in college football almost every day, which is amazing because none of it is actually going on. Um, but that's that's a story for another time. The big uh, the, the interest one of the interesting stories in college football last week that I didn't get to cover was Reggie Bush uh, is now uh, no longer disassociated from USC. The, the NCAA sanctions uh, ran out and he is now back in the fold at USC. And I guess the first thing I would ask him, Matt, is, uh, you know, it, it's it, Reggie Bush was a star right when I started this job. Uh, so my first year sort of doing this national gig, I, 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 caught, I covered a lot of his games uh, because obviously USC was so awesome and he was so awesome. You know, I, I, I'm trying to put his career in perspective, and I think the more we get away from it and the more the sort of the sanctions fade into the background and his NFL career is now over, I think in some ways I think we appreciate I'm starting to appreciate just how great he was now maybe even more than I did while he was in the pros. I'm wondering what your feeling is on that. Yeah, I think we're kind of seeing a resurgence of appreciation for just how great he was. I mean, he's a guy who you know was so hyped out of high school and you know met that hype in college, but then when you uh, talk about the sanctions that happened when you talk about what happened in the national championship game, which caused people to say, well, Vince Young should have won the Heisman. And then, you know, his NFL career didn't go. He had a good NFL career, but I think he's like unfairly almost called a bust just because he didn't live up to the really high expectations of a number two pick with his kind of pedig- pedigree. But I'm of the opinion that he did deserve the Heisman when the Heisman was given before the bowl game. And he was, you know, just this kind of transcendent player with, um, you know, one of the it was like a guy. I, I I don't know who it was who said on Twitter. I'm sorry that I'm kind of stealing this, but somebody pointed out that uh, Reggie Bush um, looked like his high school highlight tape in college, which is hard to to <laughs> say for a lot of guys. But it was true. You know, some of the plays that he had in college. So 
you know, he did it. It was multidimensional um, and he's playing really kind of in a conventional USC offense. If you think about it, you know, it wasn't some, you know, the USC offense of today or, or anything is pretty conventional. Um, but he was, so he's almost ahead of his time, which is weird to say about somebody 15 years ago. Um, so I, and I think, you know, he's, I did all decade teams for every decade in college football history last year. And he was a clear choice as one of the running backs for the two thousands. And, you know, I'm glad to see him kind of being welcomed back as, as everybody changes their attitudes about NCAA sanctions and, and things like the Bush violations. Um, I, I think it's kind of ridiculous that he would have been disassociated from USC. I still think it's ridiculous that he doesn't have his Heisman trophy. So, I'm all for Reggie Bush being acknowledged and appreciated as an all-time great, and we don't have to like have some asterisk next to his name. Yeah, I, I do hope. I, you know, it'll be an interesting process of how they go back and revisit the Heisman situation with him. You make a great point about how because Vin, because of what Vince Young did in that championship game, it in some ways. It, it unfairly, for some reason, tainted Reggie Bush, right? Uh, Bush, you know, the funny thing is, I, I we remember the championship game a lot about the fumble that he had, that, that lateral fumble, because it was yeah. such an enormous play. But I go back and look at it, he had a pretty good championship game, uh, Bush. He had that, you know, spectacular touchdown run. He caught a bunch of passes. It wasn't a, a one of his most dominant games, but he certainly had a very good championship game. And you're right, it's just the, the dynamic between him and Peterson, excuse me, and, and I'm thinking Adrian Peterson because he's the other guy I would think of like when running backs of his era. Uh, the, the dynamic between him and Vince Young and the idea that, well, in some ways Young was slighted, he wasn't really. I mean, within that moment... Reggie Bush was as spectacular a player, a running back, as we had seen in college football in a long, long time. You know, I'm just, again, covering so many of his games and just watching him and thinking, like, I can't under, under, uh, underestimate this. He really was the type of player. We say this a lot. Every time he touched the ball, you thought he was going to score. He was that type of player that really epitomized that. Like, he, it, it literally felt that way. Very often, I remember like the, the the Notre Dame game, especially where it just seemed like he was a step away on every play. You found yourself, oh my goodness, there goes Reggie, there goes Reggie, and um, again, a spectacular player. And I, I'll, I will be interested to see how this plays out with the Heisman. Uh, so you would like him to get the Heisman back. Um, uh, but I, again, I don't know how that works unless all of a sudden the Heisman one day just says, okay, we punished you long enough, and then we're just going to hand like it back to you. Pretending that things didn't happen in college. Yeah, football. I'm, I'm big with wins. that. Too. I don't like vacated awards. You know, he won the Heisman. He didn't, he didn't really, he didn't cheat on the field or anything. Like, I, I don't know. I just think it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, and I, I still refer to him as Heisman winner. Right? Yes. I, I always refer to him as a Heisman winner in copy and maybe at some point explain that it was vacated later on. But in my mind, and we, you know, we, he is still a Heisman winner to me because he actually did win the Heisman. Uh, so that was an interesting story that came about last week. So Reggie Bush is not eligible yet. Well, uh, let me ask one other thing with Reggie. And I have it, you know, I probably should have been better prepared and had his NFL stats in front of me. But the other thing that was interesting about Bush is he was this sort of multi-talented guy. In fact, the, the breakout game I remember for Reggie Bush was the 2004 season, the opener against Virginia Tech. I don't know if you remember this game. It was played at FedEx Field. And USC was breaking in all these new wide receivers. That was the one questionable part of that team that year was they had all these new wide receivers. You know, I, maybe, maybe I'm getting this wrong. Maybe it was the 2005 opener. It was the opener to that. It was right. four. Okay. And Bush was a sophomore and basically like they threw the ball to him a whole bunch that game because they didn't have their receivers you know worked out and he ended up having this huge receiving game and I do wonder you talk about being ahead of his time only 15 years ago even for the Saints when he got to the Saints they had Deuce McAllister and it was going to be sort of a thunder or lightning thing you know Sean Payton's offense and offenses in general the NFL hadn't evolved to the point where they are now I I do wonder if if simply being 10 or 15 years later he would have been used differently and valued differently we we would have been past the point where we just sort of 
focus very heavily on the rushing numbers of NFL running backs and gone to the idea that no, 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 they're they're playmakers in in multifaceted ways. But the, it, it's interesting that you say ahead of his time, even though it was just it was not that long ago. Yeah, I just think. I mean, he couldn't have, I, I guess I don't want to say he could have been in a better situation because he was playing with a ridiculously talented roster in a dynasty in the mid 2000s at USC. But it's also the type of guy who, yeah, I would like to see, like, what would he have done in, like, Chip Kelly's Oregon offense mm-hmm. um, or, you know, in the Oklahoma offense right now where the running backs are still capable of putting up big numbers. So it's just he's an interesting guy in, in that varied skill set. You know, that Virginia Tech game you mentioned. USC only scored three touchdowns in that game. All three of those touchdowns were Reggie Bush catches. So that's a very interesting one to point out because, you know, he had nine carries for 27 yards in that game, but 127 receiving yards and three touchdowns and kind of a otherwise somewhat shaky game for USC. So we kind of saw that a lot from him. He just beat you in different ways. And then he clinched the Heisman, though, by doing, you know, he had that 294-yard game against Fresno State and 260 against UCLA. And, that's how you clinch a Heisman. Yeah, I, I was at the UCLA game again. So many of their games I covered that year. I was at that UCLA game, and it was again one of those games where it's like, there he goes again, there he goes again. <laughs> <laughs> like it was, it was, it was bizarre. He was, he was video game like. We use that again a lot, and sometimes overuse that. But he was definitely one of those players. So in a few years, you know, let's extend the conversation to the Hall of Fame. I didn't think we would go this direction, but it'll be inter- interesting to see what Reggie Bush. And where Reggie Bush ends up with his Hall of Fame candidacy when it comes to college football as well. Eric Dickerson just got into (laughs) the Hall of Fame last year because he was, again, sort of linked to the SMU scandal, which was, of course, one of the Titanic scandals in the history of college football. Uh, And they and the the Hall of Fame has doesn't have a, a a distinct policy, a spelled out policy about NCAA infractions and things along those lines. They they do have some some wording about character and values and ideals and things along those lines. But they don't have a, 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 a laid out objective uh, way of judging somebody who has been involved with the NCAA. But I would not be surprised if he has to wait a couple of years to get into the Hall of Fame because of his linkage to the NCAA scandal. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a few years, but we're not going to see another Dickerson-like situation. I just think attitudes in have changed so much in terms of, you know, quote unquote, pay for play and things like that. Um, that I don't know. I, I think, I think it might be a little bit of a delay, but I, I and I also think being no longer being disassociated with USC helps. It's just, you, you kind of saw that news and everybody's like, well, it's about time. Um, so I, I think that will ultimately translate into his hall of fame candidacy whenever that comes up as well. Yeah, and and again, about four or five years from I think they do about five years from the end of your career. Again, the College Hall of Fame has some is not quite as straightforward as a lot of the other Hall of Fame. Yeah. Schools get involved and they sort of push candidates, and sometimes they don't want to push too many candidates at once because nobody gets in more than one player per year, and often not more than you won't have the same school represented in two straight classes. So let's get into the, a little bit of that. Because the Hall of Fame can be a little exas- exasperating for people who will look at the list and say, how is that guy not in? How is that guy not in? But from the sheer volume of players alone that need to be managed, it it, it, it is almost an unmanageable task. Exactly. I mean, you look at the list every year and it's three quarters of them. I'm like, well, that guy should probably be in. And half of them, it's like, well, he should definitely be in. And at least a quarter of them, it's exactly what you just said. How is he not already in? I know like Tommy Frazier was that case for a couple of years, it felt like. And we had a long discussion on this podcast about Dickerson last year. Um, so there's definitely, it, it's always hard to choose. Like, you know, I, I see there's multiple Heisman winners on this list. I think they should just, like, I'm not even going to talk about them because I think Carson Palmer and Rashawn Salam should just be in. They're Heisman winners. They're obviously college football Hall of Famers. That's at least an exclusive, really exclusive club. Um, but, you know, there's a few on this list. I'm like, how? Um, you know, it's we're starting to see like a, the bulk of this list or the bulk of the guys that I might talk about are kind of mid 90s to mid 2000s. That's kind of what we're starting to see with the window where there's going to be a backlog. Mm-hmm. But there's still guys from the 80s, the 70s, that it's, wow, you know, he should be a college football Hall of Famer. But it's just, 
you know, I think the Hall of Fame will get a lot of criticism just because of that. But it's also, as you said, it's kind of an impossible task because there's just, um, you know, guys only have three, four, five years at most in, in college, and they're all being judged by based on kind of similar resumes in many respects. So it, it is hard to pick the ones that deserve to go in a, ahead of the others. For a lot of years that I've been doing this, and just a little background, in the last 10 or 12 years, the Hall of Fame has become a lot more structured. They've tried to be more transparent about how they put players in, and they release the ballot and things along those lines. They're trying to, like for for decades and decades, one of the reasons why there was a backlog is the Hall of Fame was just not was just off the radar and it was inducting another Yale guy, you know, it's just, it was not like, it was not taken seriously and it was not run like a serious hall of fame for, for decades. And the, the, the people who are running it now decided, no, we want this to be something that's respected and something that gains attention. So they've tried to catch up and, and have more players put in. One of the things they did, I noticed last year, and I don't know if this is a trend, again, to sort of catch up with the players, or if it was just a one-off from last year. Last year, 17 players were inducted. In the past years, it's been a little more in that 12 to 13 range. So maybe they're expanding it a little bit to try to get more players in. Regardless, it's still, again, an almost impossible task. So let me ask you about this. So the other challenging thing with Hall of Fame for college is, you know, great in what context, right? Because I can find a a player who played in the MAC who was great at that level, right. and maybe deserve is all sort of all time great. And that player to me could be a Hall of Famer, or maybe there was a player who was played at a more high profile school and only played maybe one or two years where he was great because he then he bounced to the pros. So how do you judge? That level of success, how do you judge the success of a guy who was a tremendous college player but had very little pro career? And you say, well, that doesn't isn't supposed to influence you at all. But it's hard not to be at least influenced a little bit by the idea that, and I'm looking at a, a good example, like a Josh Heupel, who was a great college quarterback at Oklahoma, but you know had no significant pro career. So do you, do you ding him a little bit? Do you say, okay, he's going to wait a little bit? Do you not take that into con? There's just so many factors that come in here that have that are, make the college football hall of fame nothing like any of the professional hall of fames. Exactly, and you mentioned like if you look at group of five type players, I mean, one of the criteria for getting in now is you had to be a first team All American, and that makes it really hard for like a great group of five quarterback. I mean, there's, okay, there's multiple All-America teams. So there's, you know, there could be a couple first-team All-American quarterbacks in a season, but still it can be really hard for those guys to make the list. We see, you know, there's usually, I don't know, two, three, four group of five guys maybe on on All-America teams at most first team. So right there, it's hard for those type of guys. You might put up huge numbers and and deserve the recognition to get in. Um, And then, you know, you mentioned Heupel. It's the NFL career. It's also he's, a short career at Oklahoma as well, you know, a a Juco guy. Um, So it's always made it hard to judge these types of things. Uh, You know, I I mentioned I did last year, all decade teams for every decade ever. It was the same type of thing. Like Cam Newton, probably the best individual season of any quarterback in the 2010s, but he had one year. So how do you compare that to, you know, a guy who was a three-year starter? It, It makes it tricky and it, but it, it just kind of also creates endless possible debates for this. Yeah. And then you end up getting sometimes into a situation where you had a player who, you know, that's the funny thing now, especially in the, in the more recent history, let's say the last couple of decades where um, in some ways the a player's uh, Newton's a really good example. And there are others that a player's greatness limits his college greatness. Newton is the extreme situation because right. he was so damn good yeah. that like, of course he's got to be a college football hall of famer, but there will be other guys who, who maybe, you know, played one or two really good years, one okay year, one spectacular year, and then bounce to the pros. Alabama. How about that one? That's a good one. A great, you, see, this is why I have Matt on. Cause he's always good. At, <laughs> he, he, he just picks these, this information from his fingertips that I struggle to come up with. Quinton Williams is a great example. Quinton Williams had one of the more dominant seasons from a defensive lineman at Alabama, not just Alabama, but in college football that we've seen over the last decade or so. And he basically was a one-year player at Alabama. So how do you judge him when it comes to College Football Hall of Fame in a few years? 
as opposed to somebody like, let's say, another guy I have in front of me going back in the Wayback Machine, a Kenneth Sims, right, who was a two-time All-American at Texas. On my list, too. <laughs> yeah, dominant player, um, was a very high draft pick, but I don't think his college, his high, his uh, pro career really panned out that much. He had some injuries, um, but is clearly, like, just from his time in the, from playing so much college football, has built up a ton of numbers and was able to accumulate a lot of accolades. Um so it, it's just it's 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 another part of this thing that just makes it so interesting. And I end up having a lot of empathy for the people who have to go about doing this because it's they're in such no win situations. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Um, I think the reaction like on social media when the ballot is released every year is basically the same thing. <laughs> right, right. How dare you not have this guy? Well, they inducted, you know double digit people like every year and it's just hard to catch up. So I think there's, I think there's some faults with the process. Uh, you know, the go-to uh, example every year is that Howard, Howard Schnellenberger is ineligible because he doesn't have a winning percentage above 600, mm. even though there's a bunch of old coaches with winning percentages below 600, but the rules have changed. Uh, so there are some le- very, very, very legitimate gripes, I think, but ultimately it's the type of thing that's never going to please everybody, which is the same with, with most things these days, I feel like. Right, right. And that's a good point. And, and the coach part of it is an interesting one, right? Because, again, you're trying to put in some type of sub- subjective measures to just be a cutoff. Because, again, if not, you will literally have, go on forever. There are 78 FBS, you know, how it, you know, define FBS for the Wayback Machine, FBS players on this ballot. And then there's another 99 who played in lower divisions, right? And a lot of those players, again, uh, you know, again, when you take context into example, like why shouldn't some, why shouldn't some of those players get the accolades because they were so dominant in college at their level, but only a smattering of those players end up getting getting into the Hall of Fame, and and that's fa- fine. But again, you you try to put up some subjective cutoffs to just make it a little bit more of a manageable task, and inevitably, what you do is go, oh, but what about that guy? <laughs> And especially on the coach's end, because coaching context and where you coached has so much to do with your success, right? I mean, you know, if I put Nick Saban at Vanderbilt, he might be, he might do the best job at Vanderbilt anybody could possibly ever do, but he, I'm sure he would also have no national championships. So, so because that's just the nature of college football. It's not a very, it's not a, a sport with competitive balance. So take that into account. There are 78 players. There's a bunch of coaches on here. Um, I'll tweet out the, the link to the ballot. So if you want to follow along folks, you certainly can. And But Matt and I have decided we're going to try to put together our teams here. So we're going to do that, or excuse me, our Hall of Fame classes off of this year's ballot. We're going to do that. I'm going to take a break real quick here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. We will reconvene with Matt Brown from The Athletic, and we will go through our Hall of Fame classes for this would be the class of 2021. This will be These guys will be selected and inducted in 2021. We'll do that right after this. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. We're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Matt Brown from The Athletic. We are going to try to put together a Hall of Fame class. I'm going to let – maybe we'll go back and forth here. But um, you'll give me a guy. If I have that guy, I'll say yes. And if not, I'll go to maybe go to somebody else. But since you're the guest and you know this stuff really even better than I do, I'll let you start. All right. I'll start. I mentioned earlier it seems like this is kind of the time for – mid nineties to early two thousands type guys. So champ Bailey from Georgia, no brainer to me, um, kind of gets overshadowed maybe a little bit by Charles Woodson in that era. You know, Woodson won the Heisman in 97 was a guy who did multiple things, played some offense, special teams, great, great defender, uh, champ Bailey, his, his offensive production was even better than I remembered. If you look back, he had 47 catches for 744 yards in 1998, five touchdowns. And if you take that away, he's still an All-American cornerback. 
Uh, so he wasn't on as great a team as that 97 Michigan team with Woodson, but he was a top 10 Heisman candidate, top 10 pick, did a bunch of things. To me, Champ Bailey is the type of guy who's like, yes, that is a college football Hall of Famer instantly. Jam Bailey is on the ballot for the first time, which makes him kind of interesting. Again, we talk about how sometimes the College Football Hall of Fame is a little funky in its selection process. Jam Bailey is already an NFL Hall of Famer. So I, I, I'm not exactly sure why it took him an extra year to get on the college <laughs> ballot. It might have had something to do with the fact that maybe Georgia was trying to uh, promote some other guys to possibly get in. I think John Stinchcomb may have been in the last couple of years. Um, sometimes the College Football Hall of Fame also will say, you know what, if a guy's going into the NFL Hall of Fame this year, let's wait a year and honor him in a different year. Um, so again, the rules are a little loosey goosey at the college football hall of fame, but Bailey, I know is on the ballot is being considered for the first time ever. And I would have him in there too. He was just a, he was a, he was a a no brainer player and boy, yeah, the offensive production, I did not realize was quite that amazing. (laughs) Like he was a legit, like number two receiver, (laughs) you know, on a really good sec team while being the best cornerback maybe in the country. He led that. 1998 Georgia team in receiving yards. There so go. there you go. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, not number two, number one receiver. All right, so after Champ Bailey, who I also have, who you got? I have um, sticking like in the same year, but I kind of was going through alphabetic order. So Michael Bishop, Kansas State quarterback, who uh, could have won the Heisman if, you know, Ricky Williams was kind of a rare case, at least if you look at it in today's terms, of a guy with that kind of production coming back for a senior season. And Ricky Williams set the rushing record that year, rushed for 2,000 yards, won the Heisman running away. But if Ricky Williams didn't exist, we'd probably be talking about Michael Bishop as the Heisman winner that year. Uh, Kansas State was the program that was just so terrible for so long. And under Bill Snyder, experience, it's re- kind of, well, not even resurgence, became nationally relevant. And... Bishop was fantastic in 98. Unfortunately, they lost that Big 12 championship game to Texas A&M, but he led Kansas State with a great performance to its first win against Nebraska in 30 years. Um, they were a national championship contender. He had an exceptional season. So to me, you know, I think he's just kind of he's kind of an iconic college player, one of those guys who so closely identify with a program and kind of a breakthrough for a program. So for me, I, I think my, Michael Bishop had a Hall of Fame college football career. Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, that breakthrough too, right? Uh, you know, Bill Snyder obviously is the person who will always be the face of the the Manhattan miracle um, and rebuilding can not even rebuilding can building Kansas State football, <laughs> building Kansas State football from nothing into something that was a relevant national contender and a team that could get, could compete against Nebraska. Uh, and you're right, Michael Bishop. I think to the for the most part, though, I, I got a, I got a different guy. I'll, I'll get to later on. Michael Bishop was one of the you know, flagship players, was one of the Mount Rushmore players of that era. And I imagine if you're a Kansas State fan, you might even consider Michael Bishop one of the, you know, Mount Rushmore players, so to speak, of all of Kansas State football history. I do not have have him, so I'll go with a different player. I'm going to try to go with guys who I don't think you might have. Um, I'll throw out Brandon Burlesworth, who is an Offensive lineman from Arkansas, played in the um, late 1990s, graduated in 1998. He he was a terrific player. He is a former walk-on. There is an award named after Brandon Burlesworth, the Burlesworth Award. And his story, you know, a lot of college football fans know it, but just the people get get up to speed. He was a walk-on. He worked his way up to being a starter at Arkansas and an all-American. He ended up getting drafted, I believe it was in the second or third round by the Indianapolis Colts. And then he he died in a tragic car accident within weeks of getting drafted. I think he was driving back from a mini camp uh, from Indianapolis to Arkansas when it happened. So he's, listen, his, his story is inspirational, but he was also a great player. He was a great, great player. And I, there certainly should be room in the College Football Hall of Fame for a player like that. Yeah, I didn't pick him on my list, but he's one that I 100% endorse. And, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to say I don't, I'm surprised he's not in already because it's, you know, the 90s. It's not that long ago based on how the College Football Hall of Fame is picked. But he's one of those guys who feels like inevitable, like he belongs in. He should be in. And I think he will get in. Um, I will flip to I'm going to cheat here and I'm going to say that one of these guys should go in this year and one of these guys should go in next year. OK. <laughs> We're going same era, same position. 
either Dwight Freeney or Julius Peppers. Uh, you have two elite, elite, elite pass rushers, both at the college and the NFL level. Freeney at Syracuse, Peppers at North Carolina. Um, you know, I'm trying to vary this list by position a little bit, by years a little bit. So I don't want to use both of them on the list, but maybe you have one of them on the list too. I don't know. But uh, I just think complete dominance from both of them um, as pass rushers where, you know, we started to more and more recognize how, you know, important a, a stud pass rusher is as the passing game became more important in college football. Uh, I think both of those are college football hall of famers. So I think give me one this year and one next year. Absolutely. Both should be in. I had Freeney. I was like Freeney to me was definite. Freeney holds the record, the NCAA record for sacks per game at 1.6, which is not a sexy record, um, right? I mean, like people will, you know, back before sacks were official, Derek Thomas had, yeah. I think it was, what, 27 or something? 20, <laughs> something like that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> back at Alabama. And I think the official record right now is like Terrell Suggs, I think, at Arizona, had about 20. Um, but 1.6 per game is not a sexy record. Uh, I would be fine with both Peppers and Freeney. I don't have Peppers on my list, but now I'm sort of like, oh, maybe I should put them on there for somebody else. I will definitely have Freeney on my list. And let me think about Peppers. <laughs> um, <laughs> by the time we're done with this, maybe I'll have Peppers on there too. Well, again, there's we're, we have a list of like 12 guys when we both could create lists of 40. So, All right, who you got next? I will go with um, Marvin Jones from Florida State, another guy who we well, probably – I think there's just kind of a backlog of Florida state players in like the nineties. Um, you know, I think we think of Derek Brooks, we think of Charlie Ward, obviously, uh, Marvin Jones left before the 1993 national championship, but still 1992 Marvin Jones finished fourth in the Heisman vote for a linebacker in the nineties. That's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. That was the year before Charlie Ward won. Ward finished sixth that year. Marvin Jones was fourth. So he, he was on those you know, every year Florida State was literally every year they were a top five team in the 90s. Um, Jones was toward the you know front part of that run uh, to finish in the top five of the Heisman as a linebacker is pretty ridiculous. We don't see that very often. Uh, you know, we saw it with Manti Teo in 2012, but otherwise doesn't happen often. So he's a guy who just seems like another no brainer for me, even if he kind of probably gets overshadowed by Derek Brooks because of what Derek Brooks did in the pros, too. But, you know. Marvin Jones won a bunch of awards, almost won the Heisman, or was at least in the conversation, and was on a bunch of really, really good Florida State teams. So he is on my list. Yeah, Marvin Jones is also a New York Jet, which of course is near and dear to my heart. <laughs> and you know, he was a he was not a a great NFL player, but he was certainly a very high level, very good NFL player for a long, long time. Um, I, I think he had at least one All Pro season in there. He was, I mean, he was a terrific NFL player. I, like, I don't know if he would p- quite measure up to, let's say, a Hall of Fame type NFL player. And again, like you're right, like n- not compared to Derek Brooks, who goes down as one of the great linebackers in NFL history. Uh, but yeah, Marvin Jones is a terrific player. I, I definitely considered him. And again, I-, I actually have another player on here who sort of is near and dear to my heart. I, I let my Jet fandom get in the way. So I didn't go with Marvin Jones because I got another guy who I-, I let my heart lead me to. And I'll get to him a little later on. So I'm going to let you take this next pick too. Okay. Well, I'm going to go with somebody who I am 99% sure isn't on your list. Okay. And that's because I want to vary the positions and throw a couple curveballs in here. So I am going to go with a kicker. And there are some really good kickers on this list. Uh, you know, Sebastian Janikowski is on this list. There's some other really good ones that people will remember from the NFL in the last 20 years, Jason Elam. But I'm going to go with Tony Franklin, Texas A&M kicker from the 1970s. Very cool. And looking at the numbers here, in one game in 1976, one game, Tony Franklin kicked a 64 and a 65 yard field goal against Baylor. Then a few games later in the Sun Bowl, he kicked a 62 yarder, which is still the all time bowl record. So a bunch of really long field goals. I think he still holds the FBS record for most attempts over 60 yards, which that's the type of thing that will, you know, hurt your all time like field goal make percentage, but it just shows how <laughs> trustworthy he was to attempt a bunch of 60 yarders. So. Uh, you know, at the time he set NCAA records for most 50 yard field goals made, uh, most points by a kicker in his career. But to have the 264 plus yard field goals in one game, 
that's pretty notable. So I'm going to give a shout out to Texas A&M kicker Tony Franklin. Okay, so now a little context here, um, and this is where my age comes. Tony Franklin was also known as uh, one of the first barefoot kickers. Yes, right, barefoot kick, and I, and back then they were also kicking off a tee. So uh, with field goals, so it's a little, certainly a little easier. Well, the, but nobody else was doing that, right? Nobody else was kicking sixty yards. Setting records, <laughs> right? He was still setting records that still that 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 are that are uh, many of which last through t- through through today. So we're not taking anything away from Tony Franklin again. And plus, the barefoot thing was 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 something of a little bit of a mini craze in the seventy late seventies early eighties. I I think there was a handful of others. I seem to remember another kicker, and I can't remember the name who kicked with not barefoot and not with a shoe but with just a sock which was <laughs> I will I will Bring that go- back. I will I will google this at some point when, while you're giving me your next guy but I love the idea cuz you're right there was a lot of great kickers on there in fact I noticed that Janikowski John Lee from UCLA uh, I think one of the Zendejas was in here um uh, and, and up for it this year uh, but I like the idea of Tony Franklin going back and putting him on there so let me go back to my list now. And you know what? I'll go to the guy who's on here as much because of his because he is near and dear to my heart as a former Jet as what was a really great college career. And again, this is a des- very much a deserving player. And that is offensive lineman offensive tackle Chris Ward from Ohio State. He was part of some really great Ohio State teams in the 70s. He was uh, a two-time All-American. He was a actually a three-time All Big Ten selection. He was part of the line that cleared the way for Archie Griffin's second Heisman. Chris Ward was a player who was not a great NFL player, but he played for the Jets for a long time. He used to exasperate a lot of Jets fans because he he got called for a lot of holding penalties at points. But he was definitely a very good player, a very good NFL player for a long time. He played um, again on some great Ohio State teams. He was a terrific college player. I wanted to get a couple of offensive linemen on here. There are a lot of really good ones to consider. My friend Aaron Taylor from Notre Dame among them. I almost had him on there, but I thought I was being biased because I personally like Aaron. So I knocked him off there. Plus, I don't want him to get a big head. And uh, But I went with my, again, sort of a little nod to my youth and my, my Jet fandom with Chris Ward from Ohio State. All right. I'm going to go with something that's similar I'm going to go with my Homer type pick too, I guess, if we if were going to say, sure. um, I grew up around Penn state football. That was, you know, what really got me into college football. I'm 32. So my, uh, first college football memories specifically are following the 1994 Penn state team that went undefeated, didn't win the national title. Uh, but so I'm going to go with Bobby Ingram, who is my wide receiver. I have on this list. He was the first winner of the Blitnikoff award. He had two 1000 yard seasons which are two of Penn State's only 5,000-yard seasons. So he's kind of ahead of his time there. Um, also has two of Penn State's four 200-yard receiving games. Uh, just a deep threat for one of the best offenses of all time, in which he averaged 19.8 yards per catch in 94. But he's also a really reliable, sure-handed, move-the-chains type guy, which is what he ended up being in the NFL. He was kind of had an underrated long career where he was great on third downs out of the slot. Uh, but... Really, really good player for a team that had averaged 47 points per game, uh, led the country in pass efficiency, put up just huge, ridiculous offensive numbers, but didn't win the national championship. So since I have very fond, nostalgic memories of that 1994 Penn State team, I'm going to put Bobby Ingram on my Hall of Fame list. That was a spectacular team. You know, I realize I don't have a wide receiver on here, and I think the reason why is because I I know, again, the way the Hall of Fame works, you'll never have two players from the same team in one year. So I kind of respected that rule. And with Dwight Freeney in, I did not put Marvin Harrison in. There are other pretty good options here. Here's a great one. It goes back to also what we talk about when we say context, right? Mike Haas. Who played yes. for Oregon yes. State in 2005, was a first-team All-American. I believe he may have led the country in receiving yards that year. He, it seemed like he caught 1,000 passes that year. He was, he was a Blitnikoff winner. Obviously, you know, didn't amount to much as far as a pro career. Didn't necessarily have a really long career. I, I think he had two really good years at Oregon State. But when you sort of think of, again, like within context, like, boy, that guy was such a great, great college football player. I don't know if he'll ever actually be a college football Hall of Famer. 
but you sort of weigh the, okay, Marvin Harrison, who's one of the great receivers of all time and is an NFL Hall of Famer, or Mike Haas, Oregon State Hall, you know, player who won the Blitnikoff Award, and to think that they're sort of in the same class, like how could I judge these two players? But, uh, you know, that's the challenge of doing this because Mike Haas in many ways had as dominant a, a, a one season as Marvin Harrison ever had at Syracuse. So, again, I, I only put that out there just to sort of show how sometimes how difficult these choices can be. I like that because a friend and I were playing, uh, getting, uh, speaking of nostalgia, a friend and I were playing the NCAA 06 video game the other day. And uh, <laughs> we were scrolling through the rosters and stumbled upon him. So, 3,000 yard receivers receiving seasons in a row, including. Oh, it was three. He, he said, said three. Three. Uh, 1,013 in 2003, 1,379 in 2004, and 1,532 in 2005. So almost 4,000 receiving yards at Oregon State. So, uh, yeah, that guy I love really, it. he I love is, that yeah, yeah, he is a Hall of Famer. At some point or another, he's going to probably have to get in there. Okay. So I'll go to my list. And it was a player I mentioned earlier. You know, Kenneth Sims was a, was a beast of a, defensive lineman for Texas in the late 70s, early 80s. He ended up being a very high draft pick. And again, it just did not work out in the pros. I believe he had some knee issues. Um, Again, trying to sort of lean between a couple of guys. I I think, you know, Roy Williams is also on the ballot this year. And I was kind of looking at him and I I probably shouldn't have thrown him out there because I was probably I probably will end up with him on there and trying to balance this out with some positions. Um, But I think Kenneth Sims um, from Texas is going to be again. Also trying to balance out regions, so not too many Oklahoma, not too many Big Twelve kind of guys on here. And I was sort of fluctuating between Williams and Kenneth Sims, but because I have probably a little bit of recency bias, I want to get Kenneth Sims on there. I he's on my list. Okay. Um, I was shocked that he's not in the Hall of Fame. Honestly, um, two time All American, two time consensus All American, was a unanimous All American in eighty one. Top 10 Heisman finisher as a defensive lineman, won the Lombardi Award, uh, fully endorsed. He was on my list. And since you mentioned the other one, I will just say Roy Williams is on my list too. Okay. Um, I think one thing, you know, we think about Oklahoma now is where is their defense? Well, at the start of the Bob Stoops era, they were well-balanced and great on both sides of the ball. And they had some really, really good defensive players. Of course, they won. BCS championship against Florida State, giving up two points. Uh, and Roy Williams is kind of just an iconic player from the start of Bob Stoops's really, really remarkable run at Oklahoma, um, which I realize I might uh, not to spoil it. We're going to get to coaches and Bob Stoops is on the That's ballot. Okay. So maybe I shouldn't yeah. have multiple Oklahoma guys on here. I realize. But whether it's this year or next year or two years from now, Roy Williams deserves to be in. Let's do this. I think we, we you mentioned the Heisman guys and Heisman guys should get in. There yes. are two Heisman guys on the ballot this year, Carson Palmer and Rashawn Salam. I, 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 I say at this point, put them both in. Um, I think the time has come for both. Uh, let me take a moment for Rashawn Salam. Rashawn Salam uh, died a few years ago, uh, committed suicide. And I think part of the reason why it has been a little while that he hasn't been in here, I think that the point when he was probably you know most likely going to get in, then this horrible thing happened. Uh, his tragic death. And I, 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 my suspicion is the Hall of Fame probably wanted to let that uh, let right. that let that lie a little while uh, before they honored him at a, giving a little time for people to grieve and then honoring him when maybe some of that grieving has passed. So I would not be surprised if Rashawn Salam is in this year. It's been, I believe, two years, two or three years since his death. So Rashawn Salam who played, uh, won the won the Heisman with Colorado in the 1990s, and Carson Palmer, who was the quarterback of at the very beginning of the Pete Carroll USC dynasty. He predated Pete Carroll. He was a quarterback Carroll inherited, and then he blossomed under Carroll, the first great USC team. He left, and then USC started winning national championships. And I will say, too, that I, I would like to see Salam get in because then there's another guy who's not on my list but I think should get in, but maybe after Salam, and that's Eric Bieniemy from Colorado, uh, star running back on the 1990 national championship team. Um, I think it's kind of a backlog there of some you know, really, really great All-American and a Heisman winner, Colorado running back. So not on my list, but I want to shout out Eric Bieniemy too. Yeah, that's a good one. And again, it's 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 almost impossible not to think of Bieniemy and Salam together because I think that like Salam basically like came right after uh, Bieniemy. 
and he won the Heisman Trophy in 1994, again, passed away in 2016. So I think the time has come for Rashawn Salam to get in the Hall of Fame. So we we got, we got knocked both of those guys off the list. Who else you got? I'm going to go with somebody, I, if I remember correctly, I think I made this case last year, so I'm going to keep making the case. And that is, I don't care how bad his teams were. Uh, I don't care how low his completion percentage was. Antoine Randall was just a great, great college football player. Um, thousand, you know, uh, seven, 7,400 passing yards, um, 3,895 rushing yards, 44 rushing touchdowns, 42 passing touchdowns. Uh, just kind of out of place at Indiana, um, but just in a came along at an interesting time in the Big Ten where you started to see some, you know, spread offense got incorporated. You saw, you know, Purdue went to the Rose Bowl in one year. Northwestern uh, in 2000 played a bunch of crazy games, brought the spread offense in. You know, Illinois won a, a Big Ten title in 2001. It's kind of a weird era in the Big Ten, and Randall L was, you know, probably the most um, annoying player to have to defend. <laughs> in the big 10 in that era, even though, you know, it was Indiana, they didn't have a ton of teams like this. If you look at some of his numbers, as I said, like some of his numbers now, they don't look impressive because we've seen guys put up huge rushing numbers and passing numbers and they do it with, you know, a better than a 50% completion rate. Uh, but at the time he was a really, really, really great player. And to be on the hall of fame ballot and be a Heisman trophy candidate and be an all American on sub 500 Indiana teams, he really had to stand out. The first FBS quarterback to have 6,000 passing yards, 3,000 rushing yards in a career. So that sort of gives you a good idea of like where he was a breakthrough, uh, revolutionary type player. Nobody had been doing the things that he was doing when he played at Indiana. And when he was done with his career, he had more rushing yards than any quarterback in FBS history. Now, again, those records have been surpassed. There are more players like him, but he was one of the first. And I believe it was against Michigan. I think there was a famous game that Indiana played against Michigan where Michigan, which never loses to Indiana, you know, was taken to the wire because it ran basically because Antoine Randall L was just so damn great. So he Absolutely. is on he is on my list as well. Uh, we are I think we're getting pretty close to the end here. So how many how many do you have left there? How many have you crossed off? I have I think uh, three left. Maybe uh, that sounds right. Three left or right. three left at the majors. Then we have to get to the uh, lower divisions and coaches. Perfect. Okay, so let's let's roll through the last three here. Uh, who's your next guy? Um, you mentioned an offensive lineman. I wanted to make sure I got an offensive lineman. Um, there's several worthy candidates. I went with Robert Gallery from Iowa, uh, kind of the start of that Iowa run of some great offensive linemen. Um, you know, was on that shocking breakthrough Orange Bowl team in 2002, blocking for Brad Banks, who finished as the runner-up for the Heisman. Uh, you know, Gallery was kind of viewed as like this can't-miss NFL prospect, um, kind of just showcased what he was at the college level, which is really dominant. Uh, came along and just helped kind of spur that that run where Iowa had a really strong few years there at the start of the 2000s under Kirk Ferentz. So I'll give you the other one, another first time ballot guy and the Kansas State guy I referred to before, which is Darren Sproles. Yes, yeah, I would have picked him if it wasn't for Bishop. <laughs> and, and without question, and again, I think sometimes that's the way these things work out with the colleges, right? You have to wait a little while because your school maybe wants to promote another guy. So Darren may have to wait a little bit before if they want to get Michael Bishop in. But Darren Sproles was just such a spectacular player. I believe he finished third or third or maybe fifth in the Heisman. Uh, um, in his big years at Kansas State was just, and, and you know also one of those guys who we talk about separating the pro and the college right Robert Gallery was a player who probably didn't live up to pro expectations but became a good pro player for a while uh, a starting type offensive lineman in the NFL so there's no certainly no shame in that but Darren Sproles was one of those guys who 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 because he was so great in the NFL it sort of validated everything, right? You watched him in the NFL and in, in college football and thought, holy cow, this guy is crazy. Like, he's so small and he's so impossible to tackle. 
And I think to a certain degree, like you, you just, we just all sort of wondered if it could work in the NFL. Right. And not only did it work, but it worked spectacularly for like 15 years in the NFL. So I, I, I don't want to separate those two things. I want that to be part of what influences this here. And that's why, to me, he's not just a, a, a guy who should be in the Hall of Fame because, again, there's so many who should be in. But I don't want him to wait. I want him in now. I, I'm not going to disagree. 5'6", 190 is what he's listed at in the NFL. In college, he ran 815 times for 4,979 yards, 45 touchdowns, also had 66 catches, heavy workload, and he's only now just finishing his NFL career. It's it is incredible. Remarkable and amazing, and he was one of my favorite players to watch. Yeah, and again, another one of those sort of like breakthrough players on a team that was on a breakthrough team, fifth in the Heisman voting in 2003, uh, 28 touchdowns. Yeah, just just crazy stuff. And, and again, in, in an era... Like he played a little bit before the explosive offensive era, but his numbers still look like he played during this era, right? He looks like exactly. one of those guys exactly. who, who like you, you look at those numbers and you think, oh, he could have played in the, in the 2010s. So Darren Sproles is one of the guys on my list. Okay, I'll move on now. I feel bad picking one guy or the other because they're right next to each other on the list. So with apologies to Dan Morgan, I'm going to go with another Big East player from that era, and that is Corey Moore from Virginia Tech who, you know, again, another guy who kind of gets overshadowed by a more famous teammate, and that's Michael Vick. But Corey Moore was a two-team, two-time first-team All-American, uh, won a bunch of awards in 1999, was on that, was a huge part of that national championship runner-up uh, team in 99. Just, you know, a guy who wasn't uh, an NFL player, really. He was a third-round pick, didn't really play much in the NFL. But I like to honor, I like those guys getting recognition for their, Really, really, really productive college career. So Corey Moore was highly decorated, um, two-time Big East Defensive Player of the Year. So I'm going to go with him as my uh, turn-of-the-century Big East defender with also, while also acknowledging that Dan Morgan deserves to be in, too. Yeah, you and uh, uh, Paul Meyerberg from uh, from USA Today always seem to remember Corey Moore better than <laughs> I do. Like, they'll always – like I, I, both I've had both of you guys sort of be like, no, but Corey Moore. It wasn't just Vic on that team. Corey Moore was awesome. <laughs> and yes, I, I I seem to remember you maybe having Corey Moore on your list last I year probably as well. Did. Yeah, he really was a, a dominant dominant defensive player in college football. So my other guy is, and you know, I'm almost kicking myself for just putting another quarterback on here, but I do think that there is something to be said for being you know revolutionary for being part of a movement. And, you know, Tim Couch was part of a movement. He was part of, you know, yes. the a major part of the evolution of college football to what we see so commonly now, these spread offenses, air raids. Uh, Tim Couch played for Kentucky. He was a first-team All-American in 1998. He was SEC Player of the Year. Uh, he set just a, a boatload of NCAA and SEC records playing for Hal Mummy. Again, his pro career did not quite pan out, playing for terrible uh, Cleveland Browns team. So who knows if that had changed, if that would have been different had it had it come at a different time. He played quarterback for the Kentucky team that beat Alabama for the first time in 75 years. <laughs> um, you know, he finished in the top 10 of the Heisman voting twice. So, you know, again, I, I understand to a certain degree, you take a step back and you go, oh, the context of his numbers, he was playing in that offense. But he was one of the first to play in that offense and to sh- sort of showcase that offense. And I think for that reason alone, he is, again, sort of revolutionary player, uh, you know, trailblazing player. So I have him on here. Yeah, and he kind of like took the air raid mainstream. You know, it's not only, you know, kind of at the forefront of the spread movement, but it's doing it in the SEC. Uh, so I, I totally agree with that one. I think that's a great pick. Um, I think we have one more major, or at least I have one more yes. FBS player on my list, and that's going to be Simeon Rice from Illinois, who is still the Big Ten's leader in all-time career sacks at 44 and a half. Uh, Illinois had some some pretty good defenses in the early to mid nineties, uh, you know, mixed results because this is Illinois football and they don't really have <laughs> <laughs> long sustained periods of success. But uh, just look at the numbers, and they still had good defenses in that area. So, in that era, so um, good NFL career as well. I'm going to go with Simeon Rice as my last uh, FBS pick here. 
So I keep waffling back and forth now because even because this is what happens and could, because I'm leading the show, I get to look at my list and change my mind over and over again. And, I, <laughs> and then, you know, so I have peppers down and it, interesting, like rice, peppers and and Freeney for college players were all relatively close. Now, obviously, they went on to different levels of success in the NFL, all had good NFL careers, though. Freeney and peppers, you know, another level of NFL career, Hall of Fame level NFL careers. I, I think I'm going to land on getting Peppers in there just because he was such a, a tremendous athlete. The fact that he was on the basketball team at North Carolina, played on good basketball teams at North Carolina, and actually was a pretty good basketball player. I know it's a college football Hall of Fame, but again, you start getting into this, like, what makes you famous, what makes you stand out, what makes you something of a transcendent player. So... While I've gone through on this list, I've written down my friend Aaron Taylor. I've written down Craig Hayward, another one who's very close to my heart. Craig Hayward from Pitt was a, a player who was just I was completely infatuated with when he was starring at Pittsburgh. And I think eventually he needs to get into the Hall of Fame. Roy Williams with the Superman play. So there's a whole bunch here. But I think I'm just going to – Ray Lewis and Dan Morgan – yeah, we haven't right. even mentioned them. Ray Lewis, too. <laughs> Ray Lewis and Dan Morgan are on here. Both, again, would be completely deserving. Um, and, and maybe I should have uh, Ray Lewis on there. But I'm going to go with Julius Peppers and acknowledge the fact that just, there's just never going to be enough room. That's that's correct. Yeah, we could again, we could name half of this list. Um, and everybody you endorsed here, I completely agree with as well. So uh, we probably need more offensive linemen. You mentioned Taylor, Steve Hutchinson from Michigan. Um on and on and on. So I think it's just, it's backed up and difficult. So, but what's even more difficult then is the next step of this, I think, which is the non FBS players, right? Super hard in, in some cases because <laughs> we have like very little information. I end up making my pick and I think it was the same one I had last year. Well, kind of fluctuating between two. I was going to go, I'll just throw it out there. I was going to go with um, Eric Elias, um, who played for. I believe it was Princeton now, and now I'm getting the Ivy League schools mixed up, so I will have to scroll down, and I will have to see. Excuse me, Keith Elias. Keith Elias played for Princeton in the early 1990s. He was a two-time All-American Ivy League Player of the Year. Being someone who was in New York and grew up in New York at that time, he got a lot of. He just got a lot of name recognition. He was he was a big. Big story. He was a popular player in these parts because he was so good. Um, I was thinking about picking him and then went back to my Mississippi roots. I've spent some time in Mississippi during my uh, early years of my sports writing career. So I'll just give you mine first. I picked Ashley Ambrose. Uh, Mississippi Valley State defensive back from the early 1990s. Uh, also a guy who went on to a very long and productive pro career. I almost made that pick because it felt like the obvious one to me because I, I knew his name yeah, <laughs> um, because right. it's you know a pro guy. Uh, so, But I'm going to go with a safe pick It's in that I think it's pretty safe to pick a Mountain Union player. Sure. And just when I started looking at his numbers, uh, quarterback Bill Borchert from Mountain Union in Ohio has just some of the most ridiculous numbers <laughs> I've ever seen. 1997, he threw 63 touchdowns and two interceptions. Um, 189 passing touchdowns in his career, uh, 14,482 passing yards, um, two national championships, uh, just ridiculous number after ridiculous number. He holds records in division three for, uh, highest percentage of passes attempted that went for touchdowns, 14% in his career, 17.3% in 1997. Um, it's just kind of on and on like this. It's just these absurdly efficient numbers. So, uh, I feel like that's a pretty safe pick. He finished his career with 141 touchdown passes to 17 interceptions. Pretty good ratio. So I think the coaches are pretty easy, and you know, we already we already sort of revealed our hand there. And that Bob Stoops is up for it for uh, the Hall of Fame this year. I believe it's the first time for him, and he's got to be a no brainer, right? I mean, I, he would be on the very short list of great coaches during his era if we want to if we want to cut him up by era. And really, his resume stacks up pretty well with some of the great coaches of all time. Yeah, I think if you look at it this way, like the coaches for the Hall of Fame are in a vastly different position than the players. There isn't really a backlog of great coaches because there are lots of 
very good coaches who maybe have borderline Hall of Fame cases that are in the Hall of Fame already. And there's not just, you know, this long list of guys. Oh, my God, how is he not in there yet with coaches? But Stoops is just one of those no-brainers because he's an all-time great in terms of what he accomplished at Oklahoma. So, you know, I think that's an absolute no-brainer. He's clearly had a Hall of Fame career at Oklahoma and should be in. Okay, do you have another guy in there? Then, because I was looking, you're right. There, like the list of other candidates for the Hall of Fame, and not to disparage some guys who had some really great careers, but there is nobody out there who sort of jumps out like, wow, that's definitely a Hall of Fame coach. And again, you, sometimes you can judge it by just you know vast accomplishments, like big picture accomplishments, like Stoops, easy, no brainer, won national titles, played for national championships, uh, you know, won all kinds of conference championships. And then sometimes you come down to a different level where you say, wow, that guy was amazing coach for the schools that he coached at, right? He he turned around programs, uh, you know, exceeded expectations at places. So is there another coach on there that sort of fits that bill for you? Well, I think I know who you might go with. So I'm going to go uh, off the radar <laughs> with okay. a people who know me know I like obscure college football history. And so I need to shout out somebody who I also kind of poked fun at a little bit on Twitter recently. So I'm going to make up for that. And that is Glenn Killinger, who uh, I knew well because I have read a lot about uh, early Penn State football. Glenn Killinger was an All-American quarterback in the 1920s for Penn State. Uh, one of the best of his era in the early 20s, and he's in the Hall of Fame as a player. Uh, but he's also on the list as a coach, or as he's a candidate as a coach, one losing season in 37 years as a head coach, uh, mostly at Westchester University, which is a D2 school outside of Philly, a career record of 176, 72, and 16. And I also just happened to buy one of his books. I bought a book from the 30s. It's basically like a football for dummies type book from the 1930s and I tweeted a couple of screenshots of uh there's a couple charts in that book that are pretty funny now that like recommend punting on first down and various things that used to happen in the 30s and it was amusing but he was a great great coach a great athlete and all time he's in the college football hall of fame as a player so um because I'm familiar with his career and it's off the radar and it's a type of quirky pick that I like to make sometimes. I'm going to say Glenn Killinger should be in the Hall of Fame as a coach. Yeah, that is a perfect Matt Brown pick, right? It's <laughs> absolutely and the fact that you, it, right, first of all, apologizing to a, to a to a person who has probably been dead for, no, you know, dearly departed uh, coach Our Killinger. Lives overlapped for about 6 months. I yeah, say. there you go. And who who wrote a book in the 1930s and you have that book. So yeah, all all the, the perfect Matt Brown pick. Um <laughs> yeah, for me it was it was it was basically Daryl Rogers or Gary Pinkle, um, uh, Gary Pinkle, who is who I assumed you might say based on your your tease there. Yeah, and again, Pinkle did such great. I mean, a very good run at Toledo, and you know, really took Missouri from a period of time where Missouri football was really irrelevant to a point where they were, you know, they were relevant. I mean, that's that's probably the best way to describe one for irrelevant to, to relevant. Uh, you know, contending for championships in the Big 12. The other the other one I was considering was Daryl Rogers, who coached at a lot of different schools and had success at m- multiple schools, had success at Fresno State and San Jose State, won the Big 10 uh, with Michigan State, had some success at Arizona State. So I, I thought that was impressive. Again, some of the, the same vein, doing it at many different places and having success above and beyond what is normally considered success at that school. But I think I'll probably slide towards Gary Pinkle. You know, again, a little more of my contemporary, a guy who I covered a little bit. And uh, again, who took Missouri from a period of time where there was just not a whole lot going on at Missouri to the point where they were contending for Big 12 titles. And then when they moved to the SEC, he won the SEC East twice. Pretty good. And I will say, I mentioned earlier that I kind of grew up on Penn State football and uh, my family got season tickets to Penn State in 2000. And our first game was season tickets. Penn State got just pummeled by Toledo, coached by Gary Pinkle. So <laughs> I endorse it. <laughs> well, he so made that, me miserable as a middle schooler. <laughs> that would have been, what, like the late 90s uh, rough years for Joe Pa, like during the dark? 2000s. Yeah. 2000s. Yeah, the early 2000s. There you go. Well, Matt Brown from The Athletic, I really appreciate you doing this little exercise. It's a lot of fun. Uh, these days we have don't have a lot of fun topics to talk about, but I like to try to bring in some fun topics on the podcast to just talk about football and enjoy an hour or so talking about football. Uh, I appreciate you doing it with me. Appreciate your insight and your vast knowledge of college football. 
And thanks for joining the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast this week, Matt. Thank you very much for having me, Ralph. Appreciate it. And now three and out. First down. Ohio State drew attention for making football players sign what the school calls a pledge, but looks a little like a waiver acknowledging the threat of coronavirus. I understand that feels like a bad look. It just it just doesn't sit right with a lot of people that uh, the unpaid athlete would have to sign away legal obligation the school has to keep them safe during a pandemic, even though Ohio State says it's not a legal document and is not intended to be used that way, that it was simply trying to make players understand that there is a level of personal responsibility they need to take for the team to be successfully protected from COVID-19. It might feel unseemly, but it's just a fact. No school is going to be able to completely protect its players from the virus. The players are going to have to take it upon themselves to stay away from the bars and the parties. The schools should be expected to go to great lengths to protect the athletes, but they can't supervise them 24 hours a day. And the virus has lots of ways of breaking through whatever security you put in place. That doesn't mean players should sign away any legal recourse, but the players are going to have to take some responsibility on their own to stay safe. Second down, as I'm recording this podcast, there was a report out of Manhattan, Kansas, that a Kansas State player tested positive for COVID-19 after initial negative tests when he returned to campus. And it's unclear if he was infected after his return. As we talked about last week with Ross Dellinger from SI, initial positives are not that troubling. What will be problematic for schools and athletic departments is infections that pop up inside the bubble they are trying to build. Third down, the latest mini-mutiny in college football came at Oklahoma State, where star running back Chuba Hubbard took exception on social media to a photo of his coach, Mike Gundy, wearing a T-shirt with the logo of the cable network OAN. What to say, what to say. Let's talk about free speech. Everybody got to speak freely here. Nobody is stopping Gundy from touting his favorite conspiracy theory TV channel, but if you're going to stand behind a network that pushes a point of view that openly and forcefully invalidates the movement that so many of your players are backing, you should expect pushback from your players. Hubbard did that. Apparently, coach and player talked it out, and some things are going to change at Oklahoma State. That's what Gundy said in the video with Hubbard, where the player apologized for not going directly to the coach with his complaints. We'll see how it goes. Gundy can keep doing whatever he wants and saying whatever he wants. But that doesn't mean the players have to play for him. The reality is, at this point, most of them probably have already learned to put up with their head coach and still have fun. And they will most likely go out this season and have a chance to have a really good season, by the way. At some point, the market will decide on Gundy, who has been, without question, one of the 20 or 25 most successful coaches in college football over the last decade. As long as there are enough good players willing to jump on board, he'll keep coaching at Oklahoma State. If the good players decide they don't want to deal with him, then he will have a lot more time to watch TV. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. FDIC.